Welcome to Sharkpedia, where your hosts, Megan and Amani, a couple of shark researchers that want to bring the science to you. We're creating a space to learn all things sharks and their relatives, answer your questions, and learn from the legends in the field. Get ready to jump in. Let's dive deep into the world of sharks. Sharkies to Sharkpedia. Hello, everyone. <laughs> today we have Jasmine Graham. We're super excited. We're going to be talking about sawfishes today. Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on today with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Could you just briefly introduce yourself and all the wonderful and amazing things you work on so that our Sharkies can know a lot of the work that you do? Sure. So my name is Jasmine Graham, and I'm currently the project coordinator for a program called MARSILACE, which stands for the Marine Science Laboratory Alliance Center of Excellence, which is a super long name that I did not make up. Um, And that's a program that's funded through the Louis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation. And it's a program that's geared towards understanding best practices to recruit, support, and retain minority students in marine science. When I'm not running that program, I am out in the field doing research on the small-toothed sawfish. I do a lot of my work with Tanya Wiley and Havenworth Coastal Conservation. Uh, And we go out and we try and tag sawfish. We recently started looking at these pups that were just pupped on public beach in Tampa Bay, which is super weird. I uh, so saw I've been, doing, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of walking up and down the beach looking for sawfish babies recently. Uh, that's um, so that's been fun. The sawfish are giving me a wild ride. Uh, so that's basically what I do with my research. And then I also am the CEO and president of Minorities in Shark Sciences, which Amani is also in the executive board of that. <laughs> and um, MISS is an organization dedicated to supporting women of color in shark science. So a lot of what I do is focused on kind of the intersection between outreach, scientific research, science education, and social justice. You sound extremely busy. (laughs) It's true. I am. (laughs) But those are all so incredible. And I I have so many questions about sawfishes. I think you are actually the first sawfish researcher I've had the opportunity to talk to. So I'm really excited to talk about this paper that you've published today. And Imani has a summary for us. Imani, do you want to go ahead and read that for us? Yep. So the article of Jasmine's that we read was large scale space use of large juvenile and adult small tooth sawfish, Pristis pectinata, implications for management. So this article covers sawfishes. Um, Sawfishes are one of the most endangered families of elasmobranchs in the world. The small tooth sawfish, Pristis pectinata, is listed as endangered under the U.S. Endangered Species Act and have been heavily impacted by targeted and bycatch overfishing. Critical habitat for juveniles and adult small-tooth sawfishes have yet to be identified. To investigate this gap in knowledge, Graham et al. implemented internal passive acoustic tags of 43 large juvenile and adult small-tooth sawfishes. Graham et al. found that 58% of tagged individuals would migrate, while the remainder of tagged individuals remained as residents in the area where they were tagged. Both sexes and size classes migrated, indicating that size and sex are not determining factors for whether or not an individual migrates. Areas surrounding Boca Grande, Cape Canaveral, and the lower Florida Keys were heavily visited and should be evaluated further to determine if these areas are critical habitat for large juveniles and small tooth sawfish. So before we get started... This podcast is about sharks and their relatives. So can you tell us, is a sawfish a shark or a ray? Sawfish are rays. And the way that you can tell that, simplest way that you could tell that is that their gills are on the bottom. So sharks have their gills on the side. 
braids have their gills on the bottom. So if you were to look at a sawfish from underneath, you would see their cute little mouths and then their little gills on the bottom. And that's why they look so weird. They're flat, like, because they're rays. They have a disc, so their pectoral fins may form that disc like a ray. But then you look at the back of them, and they've, they've got, like, dorsal fins. They've got a caudal fin that's very similar to sharks. So a lot of people are very confused about what they are, uh, but they are rays and they're just weird looking, weird looking animals. Yeah. For those who hopefully a lot of our listeners know what a sawfish is, but if you don't know what a sawfish is, they have a really long rostrum that looks like a saw with teeth on other, on either, either side. And I think one general question I have for you, Jasmine, is how do you distinguish the species of sawfishes? Because there's, how many species are there? About five, I think. There are five, yeah. The Well, the biggest difference is that they vary in size. They also vary in the number of teeth that they have. But that's a little difficult because there's variation within species as well. Uh, so that gets a little tough. But the kind of the shape of the rostrum, which is that saw, the size, number of teeth, the position of the teeth. That's kind of how you can tell. Also, it's a pretty dead giveaway uh, for the small tooth sawfish. If you're in Florida and you see a sawfish, it's a small tooth sawfish because the large tooth sawfish is locally extinct in the United States. So they don't oh. exist anymore. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. I, are all species endangered? Sawfish? Yes. All species of sawfish are either endangered or critically endangered. They're actually among the most endangered families of elasmobranchs in the world. They flip back and forth between first and second. The wedge fishes give them a run for their money sometimes. Uh, but arguably, they're, they're definitively in the top three. Uh, they fluctuate between what first and second place. So speaking of endangered, um, what historical or current events have led to this species being so endangered? Well, unfortunately, like a lot of animals, people have not been kind to sawfish. So sawfish have those big saws. They're really prone to getting entangled in gear. So in the Industrial Revolution, we started using commercial fishing gear, dragging big shrimp trawls, things like that, using gill nets. They got uh, tangled up in them. So they were pretty prevalent in bycatch. And unfortunately for sawfish, they don't usually survive whenever they're caught in shrimp trawls or gill nets because it's just too much stress on their body. Oftentimes their saws get broken off. It's just, it's a whole mess of a situation. So that was one major thing. The other major thing is that they need the mangroves for their nursery. So the baby sawfish spend a lot of time hanging out in the prop roots of mangroves hiding from predators because although sawfish, when they're fully grown, are apex predators at the top of the food chain, when they're little, uh, other, sh other things eat them. So sharks, saltwater crocodiles, basically anything bigger than them is going to eat them. So they spend a lot of time in those mangrove prop roots hiding from predators. And if there are no mangroves, there is no place to hide. And sawfish aren't exactly speedy, uh, and they're not exactly well camouflaged because they're giant hedge trimmers. So if they can't uh, get into those prop roots, a lot of times their mortality as young juveniles is higher. So that's a big problem. And then we've also got the unfortunateness of poaching and people wanting to kill them and take the saws. Now that's illegal to do. They're protected. They're listed under the Endangered Species Act. So it is illegal to catch them on purpose. People still do that. Uh, it's also illegal to sell rostrums across state lines, but some states still allow them to be sold within their states. So it's a, it's a very sticky situation that a lot of us conservation scientists are working to remedy that and kind of fill in those loopholes. I know that you said they typically die when they get caught in some gear and their saw breaks off, but if it wasn't for the stress of being entangled, are they able to regrow their saw? No, they cannot. Oh, it's so unfortunate. They're such cool animals. 
where do you, else can you find them in the world? Are they pretty global, that group of animals? Yeah. So the, well, the small tooth sawfish, the species that I study, has two lifeboat populations. And they're called lifeboat populations because they're the only places where you can find sawfish with any sort of regularity. Uh, so they'll be the occasional small tooth sawfish here and there, but there's definitely not enough to sustain a population. So basically the two populations that are keeping the small tooth sawfish from going extinct are in South Florida and the Bahamas, mostly uh, centered around Andros. There, the other four species of sawfish are kind of on the other side of the world. We used to have the large tooth sawfish here in the United States. But unfortunately, they have gone extinct locally, so we don't have them here anymore, which is super devastating. But a lot of the other species of sawfish are in Australia. That's a really high area for them. Also, um, like Sri Lanka, Indonesia, places like that have a lot of them. But uh, it's in terms of on this side of the world, the small tooth sawfish is kind of it. For the United States, unfortunately, um, and even though they used to be found, the small tooth sawfish used to be found all over the Western Atlantic. So as far north of it, as at least North Carolina on the East Coast of the United States, all the way down the East Coast of the United States, Gulf of Mexico, in through Texas, Yucatan Peninsula, all the way down to South America. And now it's basically just South Florida and the Bahamas, which is really sad. Do you have any, do you think if the population is able to grow, would they re-inhabit those areas? That's the, that's kind of the goal. That's, I mean, one of the conditions for delisting is that their range expands out. And, you know, there's debate about how much expansion is enough to delist. But in an ideal world, you would want them to be able to at least start returning to their historic ranges and start spreading out. There are, like I said, a handful of small tooth sawfish in other places. There was one caught in Panama a couple of weeks ago. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, and, and there's people doing eDNA work in Mexico that have seen evidence that they might be, at least some of them there. So it's kind of a hope that they'll expand and then maybe reconnect the fragmented populations and hopefully recover. And I mean, that's the goal of every time you list something on the Endangered Species Act, does that always happen? We don't know, but that's the goal. And as my paper kind of shows, they're starting to move around a bit more than we thought that they were. So that's promising. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of moving around, um, can you kind of talk about how you catch sawfish for your research? Um, what sorts of permits and cautionary um, actions you have to take when handling such an endangered species um, and kind of just, I guess, explain to the audience what a day in the life of fishing for a sawfish looks like for you. Sure. So in terms of permitting, it's permits on permits on permits on permits. Uh, so this area, this areas that we fish in a lot, particularly when I fish in the Keys, I'm fishing in the Keys National Marine Sanctuary so got to get a permit to just be able to go in there and fish. Uh, or I'm fishing in Everglades National Park. Also got to get a permit just to go and fish in there. Also, we're using a type of gear that is technically illegal in those areas. We're using gill nets and long lines. So for commercial fishers and recreational fishers, that's illegal. So we actually have, a, have to have a special permit to be able to use that type of gear for research. So there's a permit for that. And then you're dealing with an endangered species. So you need a permit for that. <laughs> um, and then we're, you need a permit just to, you know, touch the animal. And then we also have to have special permission to do the surgery that we need to do to put the transmitter in. And the process for that was basically people had to prove that this wasn't detrimental to the sawfish, that the way that we were fishing, the amount of soak time or the amount of time that we were leaving gear in the water wasn't going to damage any of the other animals that might be caught as bycatch. All of that stuff, uh, we have to kind of prove that and show examples of this is what it looks like whenever the sawfish heals from the surgery and look, see, it's not 
it's not hurting it, it's fine, it, it's, it heals up very quickly, all of those things. So that's kind of uh, what goes into the permitting. And uh, a lot of people don't know this, but there's also a limit on how many sawfish we are allowed to even research. So there's a cap. So there's only a certain number of permits that are given out to do research. And those permit holders are allowed to put other people on their permits, but our numbers go into their cap. So I'm listed on Tanya's permit. And so me and Tanya and everyone else listed on Tanya's permit, collectively, we can only take a certain number of sawfish. So that kind of keeps us from doing too much uh, in terms of handling the population and things like that. Uh, then as far as the gear that we use, we use long lines, uh, which are just kind of like the name suggests, long lines of monofilament. We use like 300 pound tests because we catch sharks and sawfish and they're strong. Uh, so we don't want our line to snap. Although sawfish definitely can cut through our line with ease. If they hit it the right way, they just swipe right through it, which is sad whenever we pull up the line and we're like, oh, sawfish definitely cut that in half. Oh, no. um, <laughs> just missed so, it. <laughs> yeah, just missed it. So that's a type of gear that we use and we usually have like a mile long line with 50 gangens, which are these long uh, lines that have hooks at the end of them so that animals that are obligate ram ventilators, meaning that they have to keep swimming to breathe, still have enough room to swim around. And we bait that, we put that in the water, we let it soak for an hour, and then we haul the line. For the little sawfish, so the juveniles, we use the gill nets uh, and that's mostly because they they have little little bitty mouths, uh, and so they don't take bait that much. Small. Uh, and so the gill nets are kind of a way that we just put it out, and then anything that swims in that area is going to get caught in the gill net. And um, but we have to be very careful with the gill net because it's a very destructive piece of gear, which is why it's actually been banned in. Florida water. So in the state of Florida, you cannot use gill nets unless you have a special special permit to do so. Because if you let it sit, it, I mean, things are stuck in there. They can't go anywhere. It's their gills are trapped. They are really prone to dying. So we, when we do our gill nets, we actually watch it. We sit there on the boat or if we're doing it from shore, right offshore. And we sit there and we watch it and we watch the little floats. And if there's any movement whatsoever, we go and check it to see what it is uh, so that we can get that animal out of there and make sure that we're not um, killing anything. So that is a little bit more intensive than the long line, which we can just let soak and get in an hour. The gill net, we're watching it. And then just to be sure, we check it every 30 minutes in case we missed something hitting the net. Uh, so that takes a little bit more um, work to make sure that it's it's safe and not damaging any other species in that area. So how many sawfish do you catch if you go out fishing for a day, for example? Um, because I know some people might be listening, they're like, oh, you catch so many sawfish. But I'm curious what the actual numbers are. What is the like catch per unit effort, basically? <laughs> yeah. Um, so sawfish are critically endangered. So there's not a lot of them. So it is a bit of a needle in a haystack. Sometimes you kind of get the honey pot where there's a whole bunch of them hanging out together and you just catch all of the ones right there and it's super exciting. And you're like, cool, just casually caught two sawfish on one line. And then other times you go and you set nine, 10, 15 lines before you catch a sawfish. So I've, I've been on trips to the Keys where we fished the entire five days straight, doing at least six lines a day and caught one. <laughs> so it, it's a lot of effort to just catch a sawfish, unless you're fishing in an area that you know, like you, they, you've had reports of a sawfish in that area. It's a total needle in a haystack situation. We try to fish places where people have at least seen sawfish recently, but sometimes we have to just wing it and go fish somewhere. So, um, and for example, walking on the beach, we there's 20 miles of this beach. 
we know that there's at least four baby sawfish hanging out here and people see them and they report it and we have a report over here we have a report over here we have a report over here so there's only so much space that this baby sawfish could be at and we <laughs> walk seven miles up and down the beach and we won't see it <laughs> so it's it's really tough is it pretty easy to see them from the beach yeah well this is a kind of strange situation where apparently they were pupped right off of a public beach and so the water in uh, Tampa Bay is pretty clear. So they are in like ankle deep, knee deep water, just frolicking about. So that's actually how our reports are coming in. People are walking down the beach and just seeing them and calling it in. Uh, or people are fishing off the beach and they catch it. Or they're cast netting. There's a small child that caught a sawfish, the baby sawfish at a cast net. Um, what? So- <laughs> <laughs> so they're just kind of hanging. They're just hanging out right now. Um, and they're in pretty clear water. So it's pretty easy to see them. But in terms of the normal, it's definitely not normal for us to be able to find them like this. At least we don't think it's normal unless this has been happening all the time. And this is the first time people have started reporting it, which means that we're doing better with our outreach. But um, yeah, it's it's tough. And usually when people see the sawfish, they actually see them in the water because I mean, they're pretty big when they're adults and people see them paddle paddle boarding and they're usually in pretty shallow water. The water in this area is pretty clear. So usually people, when they see them in Tampa Bay, they see them in the shallows when they're paddle boarding or walking along the beach or whatever. And you said, there was a female that pupped out there. Do you think all of these babies are just from one female that you're finding? Yeah, we think so. Uh, so for the listeners that are listening to this and are interested in following this whole story, Tanya has an entire blog on the saga of these baby sawfish <laughs> that uh, Save Our Seas posted. And she also has it in her sawfish news that comes out monthly. But yeah, the for some reason... And maybe this is normal. Maybe this mother actively thought, hey, this public beach seems like a good place to pup. Or maybe she said, well, this is where I was born. So darn it, I'm going back to the same place. I don't care that they put a public beach here uh, because sawfish are, they go back to their same areas to pup. So, uh, but for whatever reason, there are baby sawfish there and it's probably from the same female but we'll know whenever that we run the genetics. We did take genetics from the three that we've caught so far. So we're waiting on the genetics to process. And honestly, it would be super cool if they process the genetics and they say, oh, we have the mom or the dad in our database already and we've already caught them. That would be awesome. Oh, Chances that would be so cool. (laughs) Chances of that happening are kind of small, but it would be awesome if our um, genetics guy comes back to us and says, oh, actually, you caught the mom in 2015 or whatever. I imagine you probably take genetic samples for each sawfish that you fish. Yes. And so in the paper, you also discussed that the residency of the sawfish that you tagged don't seem to be there, or if they migrate, doesn't depend on their sex or their age. So I guess... One of my questions that I just wanted to discuss with our listeners is why do you think they migrate at all? That is the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out now. That's why this project is continuing. That happens in science where you start looking for answers and you get more questions. So now I'm just going to forever be a selfish scientist because there's so many sawfish questions, but yeah, I mean, I have theories, which I talk about in the, in the discussion there in the paper, but it, it could be that it's just an individual difference that, you know, some individuals feel like moving and others don't, uh, because in different species, you do have individual variation of, of migration patterns. It could be that, the females are migrating to pup 
It could be that they're avoiding mating because sawfish mating is a very dramatic thing. Oh, <laughs> it, can you tell it, me? Um, yeah, it it involves a lot of hitting with oh, the saw, gosh. and <laughs> it's uh, they have some pretty intense scars uh, when they mate. It's not it's not a walk in the park not so, romantic <laughs> at all the thing that female elasmobranchs have to withstand is just insane <laughs> yeah exactly so it could be that the females are because we believe that the mating and pupping and all of that we kind of have an idea we we haven't actually seen mating happen dean accidentally saw pupping happening when he was in the Bahamas and he accidentally delivered a couple of baby sawfish. Oh my but goodness. It, <laughs> it's on video and it's crazy. It That's is amazing. on video. That's yes. Um, Jake Jerome from field school got it on video because he had his camera rolling. Um, but yeah, it's, it's could be that like, we think that they are pupping every other year based on um, different things that we're seeing so it could be that they are alternating their migration. So the females are migrating away from the males and away from the mating aggregations when mating happens because they're like, why would I put myself through mating if I'm not going to actually pup? That's silly. So they might just be getting out of the way. Um, that's a theory, but then that doesn't explain why the males, some males are moving and some males aren't moving. And uh, it could be resources. So there could be less resources down in the Keys and maybe the really strong ones that are able to like defend their territory or whatever, are able to get more food and the ones that are having issues, they're not as fit uh, they're not getting as much food. Maybe they venture to go see if they could find some food. I, I mean, I, their theories are endless. I have lots right. of theories. None of this is supported by anything at this point, but I'm working on it. I mean, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like you have a whole career ahead of you, which is yep. awesome. <laughs> um, so in your article, um, you mentioned that some of the locations that you noted were used by both mature and immature sawfish, while others were used exclusively by one or the other. Do you have any ideas as to why this might be and why they might be choosing some movement corridors versus others? Yeah, so I think that in terms of the ones that the immature sawfish aren't using, I think a lot of that has to do with just the distance that it takes to get there. So if, if you're a little two meter long sawfish it's really hard for you to get from tampa to panama city that's that's a big track um for you to for you to a lot of ground for you to cover road trip uh, yeah <laughs> but if you're an adult that's a lot easier a lot more doable a lot less scary because you're at the top of the food chain so i think that has a lot to do with that in terms of the places where the immature sawfish are going but the mature sawfish aren't i think that for the mature sawfish going into the estuaries is they're not going as deep in because if if they're females they're just going in there to drop their pups they get kind of far enough in and they drop their pups they say sayonara good luck i've set you up for success i hope and they go on their way whereas the immature they are you know they're dropped off kind of in the estuary and they swim further into the estuary to try and get away from all the predators and everything, find those mangrove shallows, hang out there until they're nice and big and strong and can kind of defend themselves a little better. So I think that has a lot to do with we're seeing the differences between the immature and the mature sawfish. So do mature and immature sawfish often overlap in the same location? Um, Cause I know like for some shark species, the juveniles will hide from the adults because they'll definitely eat them. Um, so is there that same sort of adverse reaction to each other or do they kind of just co-mingle about? Um, yeah, as far as, as far as I know, there's no sawfish, sawfish predation happening. The babies are separated mostly just because they don't want to venture out very deep, not because they're hiding from the sawfish, the adult sawfish in particular. It's just the adult sawfish are in deeper water where there's also other apex predators that they want to avoid. 
the um the sawfish usually leave the estuaries uh their nursery areas at about two meters in length which is why my paper focused on sawfish that were two meters and longer because i was an, interested in looking at the population of the sawfish that is has left the nursery and is now starting to do their normal migrations but yeah for the most part it's i mean the small juveniles have very small home ranges where they're just kind of staying in one place uh, there's usually a lot more of them kind of together because they're all using the same areas but they don't really travel together they kind of space out which is what we're finding with all of these babies that they kind of were dropped somewhere and then they all went separate directions uh, and they're at different places along the beach so in general sawfish don't purposefully hang out um, at least I haven't seen any evidence that they do that but they will simultaneously be using the same areas just because it's a nice area. So we do see some sawfish aggregations, particularly the when they're migrating, they have these certain stopover points where they seem to just hang and rest while they're doing their migration. And it's not that they're avoiding each other, but it's also not like they're purposefully trying to hang out with each other. It seems more coincidental. I want to back up a little bit. One of the questions I should have asked earlier on is you mentioned that you surgically implant these tags into sawfish, which are passive acoustic tags. And in the paper, you discuss a lot that a lot of the detections you get is likely, you know, you have a higher success rate of detecting one of these sawfishes if, if there's an area where there's a higher density of the receiver buoys that will ping the, the tag that's within that sawfish. So could you just expand a little bit on the collaboration that it takes to work with these receiver arrays? What does that look like? How do you work with each other to get all that information? If one of your animals that you tagged passes a receiver buoy from somebody else's project. Yeah, so this project definitely would not have been possible without the acoustic networks. So we, this project included iTag, FACT and ACT, which are three different acoustic networks. And for those of you that don't know how acoustic telemetry works, in a nutshell, there are these transmitters that are sending out bursts of sound in a certain pattern, which tells you which transmitter it is. So they all have a unique pattern. And so these transmitters are constantly sending out this the sound. And if there's a receiver nearby that's close enough to hear it, then it registers, hey, this particular transmitter is nearby, and it will record that data internally in the receiver itself. These receivers are sunk to the bottom all throughout Florida coast, up the East Coast, Gulf Coast, all of these. And so these networks are basically scientists and researchers that have put these receivers out into the water. And these receivers don't, they're not programmed to only hear certain transmitters. They hear everything. So any transmitter that goes by it, it's going to register it. So what happens is you pull up your receiver because you have to actually dive down, get your receiver, pull it up onto the boat or onto land, connect it to a computer via Bluetooth to actually be able to take the data off of the receiver. And so you get all of this data and you'll have these tag numbers. And most of them will be your tags and you recognize the numbers, but some of them will be numbers that you didn't put those tags out and it's someone else's tags. And so these networks are a way for scientists to upload those, what we call orphan tags, meaning I don't know whose tags they are, therefore they are orphan tags. They go up into this database and so you can go and you can look for your tag numbers and see if they were heard by anyone else's receivers. So it's a big data sharing open source because we all have these receivers out there. If we're going to be hearing other people's tags, we may as well let them know uh, because right. it doesn't make sense for me to have all of this data of someone else's tags. And I know that their animals are right here, but I'm not going to tell them. That's silly. Uh, so we have this, this system that has been created uh, and different locations have the different networks. So that's why my research spanned these three networks because 
the it was such a large scale study. So it was on the Gulf, it was in the Keys, it was along the East Coast, beyond Florida even, it also spanned up into Georgia. So I was working with all of these networks because I wanted to see, okay, my tag was heard in Georgia. That's a big deal. That's or a huge my tag deal, was yeah. my tag was heard over here. That's good. That's good. Um, and that's also how we figured out that the sawfish were hanging out at Cape Canaveral. We didn't know that. We had no receivers up there. But NASA, um, Eric Ryer has a bunch of receivers out there, and he is not looking for sawfish. He's looking for something else. But he kept getting sawfish things on his receivers. He's like. You know, there's just like sawfish hanging out up here. No, we did not know that. That's interesting to know. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it takes a huge collaboration. And I just want to emphasize, I thought it was really cool that this is the largest scale, spatial scale study for small tooth sawfish. So it takes a huge collaboration like that to be able to get all that information to study their movements, which is just really incredible. It takes a lot of cooperation from everyone. One of the things I also wanted to ask was that I found it really interesting that in the animals that you tagged, there was one male and one female that used both coastlines. And I just kind of wanted to ask your general thoughts on this. Most of the animals that you tagged would go up and down the same corridor, whereas these animals seem to go on both sides of the peninsula of Florida. Why do you think that is? Do you have any kind of gut theories yeah, when I was looking at that data, the, my first thought was, why you got to do that? You just blew <laughs> all, of my, all of my theories out of the water, <laughs> especially, so one of the sawfish left earlier, started its migration earlier than all of the others, and he was just kind of like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave a month early, and I'm going to start my migration. Everyone else was like clockwork, leaving in May, and he was like, yeah, I'm going to leave a little early. Started going up the east coast of Florida, and then turned around, because apparently that wasn't a good migration path, and came back down to the Keys, and then migrated with everyone else, and went up the Gulf that time, and you're just kind of like, what, why, why did you do that? Uh, so I have a lot of questions, and that's the big issue with having such a small sample size. Although this was the largest sample size that's ever been done, it's still a relatively small sample size. And so there might be a lot more individuals that do that. And we just happen to get the really habitual individuals just because they're easier to catch because they're doing the same thing. Um, but the really interesting thing about that is I think that that leans itself more towards individual variation as being a driver of the migration than anything else. Because before that, before we saw that data, it's very easy to think, oh, they're just returning to where they were born. And so these sawfish were born on the East Coast. These sawfish were born on the Gulf Coast. And that's why they're doing that. But then you have these two outliers that are doing different things. And that makes you think maybe our original gut reaction or our gut thought was incorrect. And there might be some other factors there. So... Um, speaking of, you know, this particular male kind of just moving about the cabin as he pleases, I think the word that you used in the paper was exploratory movement. How do you define what is exploring versus what is migrating, right? Because could his movement up and then down been a part of his migration? He just decided to be a weirdo. Or would you classify that more as just exploring and then coming back down at the correct time to then migrate? Yeah, so I categorized it as exploratory because it was not as directional as the migration movements are. When the thing about sawfish is they don't really move and then they move. <laughs> like they they have a very specific place that they're trying to get to and they just go. So they'll be sitting by the same receiver for days or weeks and then 3 weeks later they'll be up way far away and they just kind of book it so he was more of a meandering and uh he also didn't go as far north as the sawfish usually go when they do the like full migration and then he turned around so that's kind of why i categorized that as 
exploratory instead of like an actual migration thing. Also, he didn't do that any other years that he was tagged. So that seemed a little off. But again, with the short time frame, you know, I did this for my master's. There's three years of data. Um, so if we kept watching him, which we will be doing because he has a 10-year battery life tag in him, we'll see if he if that's part of his normal ritual or if that was a fluke. Yeah, that makes me wonder, while you were talking, I kind of was curious, do you think it's possible if you continued to watch for a 10-year span, is it possible that maybe all the sawfishes migrate, but they're just migrating different years? Like maybe they're alternating what years they migrate? Yeah, that's that's a big thought as well. Is And it also could be that there's some threshold where they decide it's worth the energy to migrate versus not. And it could be random. It could be, uh, you know, every other year or something like that. So it'll be interesting to follow the sawfish for the next seven to 10 years, depending on when we tagged them to see what they're doing. And that's another big benefit of this acoustic telemetry is that you get to track them for a long time. And as we start putting more and more receivers out, we're constantly writing grants to put more receivers out to fill in holes because your data is only as good as your receiver coverage. If the sawfish are swimming through an area where there's no receivers, they effectively go ghost and you have no idea what they're doing. So we're really working at putting some more receivers out there so we can get a fuller picture of what's going on because there's definitely gaps in my data set where they just disappeared and then they just popped up in Tampa. And you're like, well, what what happened? You were in the Keys and then you were gone for like a month and a half and then you were in Tampa. I'm confused. What did you do in between there? So we're really interested in looking at that as time progresses and we put more receivers out. Yeah, you, you mentioned in your paper that one of the things you would hope or suggest is to put more permanent receivers, particularly in the areas where you think are critically important, like the, the Florida Keys and Cape Canaveral. What, what's the difference between a permanent receiver array versus the rest of them? Are they sometimes temporary or based on grant funding to maintain those arrays? Yeah, so receiver arrays do cost a, a decent amount of money to maintain because you have to go out, like I said, you have to go out, you have to dive down, get them, download the data, redeploy them, all of that. Then you also have to replace the batteries in the receivers. So we're going out twice a year to go get those receivers. And it's fine if they're like right here. You know, I have receivers, me and Tanya have receivers right here in Sarasota Bay. And it's a hop, skip and a jump to go get them. But to get the receivers all the way in the keys, none of us work in the keys. So we have to actually use grant money just to get to the keys to be able to do that. Dean has to trailer his boat. It's a very expensive process. So it is difficult to maintain receiver arrays. And also a lot of our work, a lot of these detections are on other people's receivers. So if let's say that a researcher is doing a bonefish study and they had a bunch of receivers out in this area and we were getting lots of detections of the sawfish and then their grant is over, their project is over, they pull those receivers out that's it. And they weren't our receivers. We can't control when they are or are not in the water. So we try to keep a good communication with the other researchers that we're getting a lot of detections like, hey, let us know whenever this study is over so we can make sure that we have receivers to put there whenever you pull yours up. Um, and then we have to take responsibility, you know, of the receiver array that's there. But uh, that's kind of what I mean by uh, permanent so us maintained by us versus depending on someone else stud ongoing study. It's great if it's a long-term study, but they might've just put them out there for a year or two and then they take them up and then that's it. We don't know where the sawfish are if they go into that area again. So that's something, the collaborativeness helps you kind of get an idea of where the sawfish are, but ultimately 
unless someone's super nice, like Eric Ryer is super nice and asks us like, where should I put this receiver so that it's strategic for both you and me? But I mean, everyone has no obligation to try and help us with our project because they've got their own things that they have to deal with. So you have to take that into consideration that a receiver that's there this year might not be there next year. So cool. I just found so many questions reading this article, as I'm sure you did writing it, right? Like you said, you ended up with a lot more questions. So I'm going to be really excited to follow you as you continue to to study this species. And one thing we wanted to make sure that you could be able to plug is if any listeners are in an area where they see a sawfish, how can they report those sightings? Yeah, so if you see a sawfish... Consider yourself very lucky. They're very rare animals. Um, But also immediately, please call 1-844-4-SAWFISH. Or if you have a smartphone or a computer handy, you can go to sawfishrecovery.org and try to, you can fill out this little form. Uh, If you can take a picture, that is great. So if you could try to take a picture, that really helps us. Uh, because sometimes we can actually see the tags in the pictures. If it's an animal that we've already tagged, uh, we could see the little dart tag hanging off the dorsal fin, and it's super helpful for us. So things that you want to try and get uh, if you're filling out that form or calling it in as close to exact location as you can. Uh, We understand that you might be not able to do that, but the closer you can get it to uh, where it exactly is, the better. If you can get a picture, that's great. If you get an estimate of its size, that's awesome. Even if it's just like, it was smaller than me. (laughs) It was bigger than me. Something like that. Human size for reference. (laughs) So it was the size of a small dog. It was the size of a small child, like something. Um, That can, that will be great. The most important thing, however, is if you do see a sawfish in the wild, consider yourself lucky, but don't approach it. Don't harass it. Don't bother it. If you have caught it, if you're fishing and you catch it, Don't panic. Just cut the line as close to the hook as you can get it. Don't try to handle the sawfish. Don't try to pull it out of the water. If you want to take a picture of it, take a quick picture with it in the water. Let it go as quickly as possible by cutting that line. They actually swallow their prey whole, so the hooks don't actually get caught in their mouths. So if you cut the line, they'll just spit it up later uh, if you cut it as close to the hook as possible. So that's kind of what you want to do if you catch one. If you see one in the wild, keep your distance. If you see one diving, keep your distance. Don't swim after it. Don't chase after it. Don't stress them out. It's illegal to approach a sawfish on purpose or harass it or purposely try to catch it. So just keep that in mind. You don't want to get hit with a big fine. That is excellent advice. So to close out this episode, we would like to hear your favorite field story. Um, And I would like to ask you specifically, because you have also just done shark tagging, and this is one of the craziest things that I've ever heard from you, is how many sharks have you tagged and caught in a single day? Oh. Um, Yeah. So both of these questions that you asked me involve lemon sharks. Me and lemon sharks have a long history of shenanigans. So I'll start out (laughs) with my funniest field story. Uh, My funniest field story is when me and Dean were out in the Keys and we were fishing, doing some long lining and everything's going fine. Things are going great. We are working up a lemon shark in the back. Lemon shark gets a hold of the hydraulic steering line of the port engine. Bites, bites it, fluid spewing everywhere, madness. Uh, Dean's got like a little thing being like, okay, stop biting that. Please just bite this wrench. Please bite something else besides our engine. <laughs> and then it finally lets go. It's, it's going everywhere. It's a mess. And we finish the workup. He like releases the animal. And then I'm like, um, that doesn't look good. And I was driving at this point. So he just hops into the console, gets some duct tape 
in typical Dean fashion, duct tapes this together, says, I think it's going to be fine. <laughs> we go to start moving. I turn the wheel. As soon as the port engine turns, stuff just starts spewing everywhere. Oh, no. And he's like, well, the duct tape didn't hold. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, I think it's going to be fine. Just try not to steer. And I was like, try not to steer? <laughs> What? <laughs> How am I going to haul the rest of this long line in if I can't steer? So basically, I'm driving with one engine, trying not to steer, finish hauling this long line in. It was a whole, it was a whole situation. So that was my funny field story. In but terms it, of, did you end yeah, up being but, okay? Yes, we were okay. She's here today. We, I mean, I am yeah. here today. <laughs> uh, it was a very slow hauling of the line. And I, it was one of those things where Dean, after I fin- after we finished hauling and it, we were done, he gave me a high five and he said, well, if you drove in that, you can drive in any situation. Hey. <laughs> You're prepared for everything now. So that was great. Um, in terms of the most lemon sharks or the most sharks in general that I've worked up. Hold on to we, your pants, everyone. We were in Florida Bay in August of 2020 fishing in Florida Bay. Apparently there was a lemon shark convention in town that oh I was unaware of. What? We did six six lines that day. We got 80 lemon sharks. Oh my god. 80 Were you so exhausted after that? I was so tired. It got to the point where it would be like lemon shark, lemon shark, every hook, lemon shark, lemon shark, lemon shark. And we're like, oh, fish on. Guess what it is? It's a lemon shark. And then there would occasionally be a nurse shark. And we would just be like, nah, we're not dealing with this. (laughs) We We don't need your sass today. (laughs) We are so tired. We are not fighting you right now. That is too much. (laughs) Just giving up. It's like the best problem to have. It's just like, no, there's too much data. I just, I'm too tired. Yeah, we, we ran out of dart tags. It, it was bad. We we just didn't, we were not prepared to work up that many sharks. And the yeah. whole trip we did, I think, 150 sharks uh, in the five days total. 80 of which were in one day. <laughs> yeah, 80 of which were in one day. And we were, after we finished, we were like, all right, we're not fishing in Florida Bay anymore this trip. We're going yeah. somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, got all the data you need. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there's an entire dissertation on lemon sharks in Florida Bay right there. If anyone if anyone wants to do that, go talk to Dean, get some all eighty lemon shark genetic samples. There you go. <laughs> oh my goodness. So many. Was that pretty is it pretty rare to find that many, I guess? Like it just was such a fluke that they were all there that day. Yeah, that was a lot. That was that was a lot. We in the Keys, we catch we have a pretty high catch rate in Everglades and Florida Bay, but that was insane. I mean, we're typically catching like ten sharks on a line. That's like eight times as many as we normally catch. Oh my goodness. Oh that's amazing. <laughs> So thank you so much, Jasmine, for being here today. If our sharkies out there want to follow you and continue following the research you do, where can they follow you? I'm on Twitter. Uh, My handle is at Elasmo underscore gal. That's E-L-A-S-M-O underscore G-A-L. Awesome. Well, that's so great. Thank you so much. Be sure to follow her. I'm going to be looking forward to following the rest of the research that I'm I'm positive that you will continue to do. So thank you so much for being here. And until next time, Sharkies, swim you later. Swim you later.